So I'm just going to put a timer on because I know myself, okay? Uh, it's a good thing to have an accountability structure in place for this. I don't feel right if I don't pray beforehand, okay? So let's pray. Dear God, thank you for today. Thank you for your word. Thank you for us being able to have several copies of the scriptures in our hands, in our homes. Father God, as we come before your word this morning, may you quicken our hearts, make our hearts tender. May we listen for your voice today. Father God, despite this cracked earthen vessel that's speaking today, may your voice be heard. We ask this through the power of the Holy Spirit, in whose name we ask. Amen. Well, what a privilege it is to uh, open up Ephesians. Um, and Mark did a great job last week on unpacking uh, predestination and what that means. And as he gave me these verses for this morning, I thought, how do I summarize this? And that's often the challenge when you come to open the scriptures. And I feel like these verses are ones that I think the summary of these verses 4 and 5, um, or sorry, 5 through 6, where it says... <clears throat> He chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that she, we should be holy and blameless in him, before him, in love. He predestined us, and, he, and it goes on like that. So I want to ask the question, you know, is God good? Because I don't know if you've had this out there in the world, but one of the classic questions that we ask is, if God is good, why is there so much evil? Why do we see that? How can you reconcile that? And... I've got this idea. What, what do you think is behind that argument? I've got, I've got a question that I think behind that argument is people want to question, is God really good? You see, if there's evil out there and God's created everything, it's got to be God's fault. Can you see where the logic goes? They want to be able to figure out and judge the person behind the actions. So therefore, if God is not good and if God has created and allowed evil, then we don't have to listen to him. You see, these days in today's culture, have you noticed that if there's a hint of something that people don't like, then um, that doesn't align with common or popular uh, thinking or culture, then that'll be cancelled. That's what today's culture has come to, hasn't it? The cancellation of voices, and particularly voices who may be on the fringe or the edge. And it may be the voices that we've come to uh, and that we've also said, we are one point of view, and in this book, uh, Cultural Apologetics by Phil Gould, it's excellent. I did ask Mark, I said, Mark, I want to refer to this book, and he said, I've got that book. The, the, the chapter on conscience is amazing, and I said, yes, it is. And instead of the old-time apologetics, how do you share your faith, he's talking about how in our culture we talk to people who want a spiritual experience, People who want to understand something other than what they see, touch, feel, and might know scientifically. There are these experiences outside there that people can't explain. And think about music. Think about art. Think about the wonder of a landscape. Think about things where people go, isn't this amazing? That experience cannot be explained by humanism. That experience can't be explained through the Darwin theory of survival of the fittest. What it can be explained through is that we are image bearers of God and that he's put in each one of us a sense of wonder, a desire for something other, 
to understand what that other is. The appreciation of beauty, the appreciation of art, the appreciation of good music. All of those things. This is a great read. And from that book, I, I really gathered this, um, this insight where he was saying, it's something that we need to take front on. Instead of retreating back into our little um, fortresses and say, oh, it's us and them, to step forward and say, actually, what the question you're asking is valid. The questions you're asking are real. The questions you're asking can be answered. It might be outside of what you think they can be, but they can be answered. And of course, when we step back into, inside the scriptures, and this is a Christian author, okay? You can get this at Kurong. Um, this helps us to engage and not step back and be fearful, but to step forwards and say, yes, isn't this great? Yes, there's some things that we don't like too much, but there they are. So can God be trusted? Is he good? Because hasn't science, hasn't history, hasn't intellect, doesn't what I see in the world uh, disprove God's existence? Has it? See, last, last week, verse 4 says, Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we, that is those in Christ, should be holy and blameless before him in love. In love. He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons and are not misogynistic. It's sons and daughters. It's humanity. The scripture is never misogynistic. The scripture never excludes women or females. Never hear that message. That is not what the gospel teaches us. That yes, we have been predestined by God. And that's the first part of verse 5a. See, for those in Christ, we've been chosen to be adopted in. We've been chosen to be adopted in. You see, this is different to an athlete's selection. A friend that I work with, his daughter... Uh, she got a, an acceptance letter based on her athletic skills. She's on a team. Apparently there was rejoicing and celebration and all of that stuff. See, that's based on performance. And then the fear of getting sick or injured. No, it's the complete opposite. That we've been chosen not on the basis of anything that we bring to the table. In fact, the opposite. Romans 5.8 says to us that while we're still sinners, Christ died for us. See, people might react to this idea that some are excluded and some are included. How do we respond to that? Because today's society, and I've trained as a teacher and just been through university, and the key, one of the key phrases is inclusion. I get that. It's one of the key foci and one of the key emphases of curriculum is to not exclude anybody. Everybody must be brought along. I understand that, yes. And that's the beauty of the gospel, isn't it? The gospel is wide open. Isn't it funny how we are labelled as the ones who are evil and needing reform? And that book that I refer to, that chapter on conscience, you've got to read that chapter. I might even ask Mark if we can take excerpts from it and pop it up. But it's, it's a great read to, to see where society has brought us through the popular narrative of fairy tales, certain movies by a certain large um, franchise that are family-friendly. I'm not going to mention the name, but you know the ones. 
What's this all on the basis of? You see, this is on our adoption into the family of God. He's brought us in. He's made it possible for us to become his children. But it's not based on us. It's based on and rooted in his unchanging character. It's based on his foreknowledge and also his love for us. That this verse... It's based on his love. What's the foundation? What's the, the basis for all of this? You see, God is desiring that all of us would be saved. The scripture says God desires that all would be saved. But not all are. If you haven't heard Mark's sermon from last week, treating uh, predestination, it, it's a cracker. Go back and, and listen to it if you haven't. He treated that so well, very well. I can't re-say that. And I'm glad he did that. And that's the foundation for what I'm stepping off. You see, what's the basis of this? Romans 3.23 says that none of us deserves to be saved. In fact, all of us, including me, me especially, I deserve eternal punishment. So you see, the Christian faith and the gospel doesn't step into the space and say, we're better than them. No, it says, actually, all of us, every single one of us, we step into that space in a spirit of humility, saying, it's God who's acted on my behalf. He's the one who's done the work. It's incredible, isn't it? See, the immense and profound wisdom of God that can hold both the responsibility of humanity uh, to believe the claims of Christ and also his unsearchable truth of predestination. And both of those things are held together as equal truths and I, I can't understand that. I, I can't explain that to you very well. But God can hold those two things because of his immense wisdom. I love Romans 11.33 where he says, Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. His paths are beyond tracing out. See, we want to understand who this person is, who God is. How can he do this? You see, other spiritual points of view, other belief systems out there have no problem with saying, yes, that spiritual truth is unsearchable, ponder it. Yet in Christianity, we often feel like we have to explain everything. Why are we afraid of saying, that's a spiritual truth I can't wrap my head around. But this truth I know. We need to preach the gospel. Now, I promised Heinz that I'd pronounce this very badly. In Holland, there's this project, and I think he said it's Maaslandkering, something like that. He's laughing, okay? But I don't know Dutch, but I think it means this, okay? It's a set of storm gates on the, the, the port of Rotterdam where it faces the North Sea. Now, they came up with an idea where they had to protect the lowlands where this river comes down and it meets the, the, the Rotterdam harbour. And the reason they had to is when the North Sea gets a storm and it pushes in with king tides, and if there's been any rain up in the Alps and it works its way down through, through Holland, where those two things meet, it's very, very bad. And when they originally came up with a plan, it was going to take 30 years and they had to uproot families and remove, completely remove historic communities. So they came up with this, um, they put out tenders and said, come up with this engineering solution. They came up with this. Don't worry, Sam, I'm sure there's German engineering in there. I'm sure, dead certain of that. But what it means is that these two large gates were built and if there's certain conditions 
these gates will close and it protects the, the harbour and it also protect, it protects the harbour from storm surges and that it also controls how much water is being released through that river. But do you know something special about these? It's completely operated without human interaction. A computer controls when they shut and when they open. Um, I love watching engineering shows, I know. It's pretty odd for somebody who's in a physical trade. But when I was watching this, the guy said, we thought we'll never see this in our lifetime operate. And yet they were watching and they said a couple of years after it was inaugurated, the water levels and this algorithm that the computer was controlling got to within one inch. Do you know how much one inch is? It's the length of the end of your thumb. 25 millimetres. It got to within that high of closing the gates. And the guy doing the interview who was involved in this project said, if it was me and my family was in there, I would have hit the button and shut the gates. But they had to trust the system. I think there's a fatal flaw in this system, and it's this. The computer system is called BOS, B-O-S. I think it should be called WIFE. <laughs> what did they trust in? They said, without the human understanding and being able to judge this and being swayed by emotion, where do my family live, how does this work? You see, God doesn't worry about just one little port and a small amount of people being inundated and flooded. God knows as he steps back and looks on humanity, past, present and future, this is the God who controls and knows all of that. He knows who will come to know him. He also knows those to be reached out to. I can't explain that properly. You see, it's outside of our capacity to know and understand, isn't it? If you're a Christian here today, I want to ask you this question. Can you trust yourself? to his big, grace-filled hands. Can you trust him? This God who has called you and adopted you into his family. See, Romans 5.8, I hope I'm on the right slide. Yes. For those who he foreknew, he also predestined. See that word again. He predestined us to be conformed to the image of his son that in order he might be the firstborn among many. And those that he predestined, he also called. Those he also justified, he also glorified. I can't understand some of this. But you see, it's God's work. And it's God's work towards humanity. How do we respond to that? Do we respond with gratitude and humility? How do we respond? Does God's overwhelming grace and mercy poured out abundantly on us to choose us, the worst, the most angry, the most filthy of rebels in desperate need of saving? And he reaches in and he says, enough. Come on. Enough. Does that shatter any trace of pride? Does that shatter any trace of a spirit of entitlement? I hope so. If you're here today and you've never known the merciful heart of a good father, maybe your human experience on this earth has not been one where you'd want to trust a good father. I can assure you, after being a Christian for some 38 years, that God is good.
He is very good. Know this today, that the warm, white embrace is longing for you to run to him. See, the huge point of difference between Christianity and other religions is this. As, as God has rescued and, and drawn us into his family, it, it doesn't mean that now we have to search for purpose. It means that God has given us a new purpose. The next point, that he's given us a new purpose, that he's called us according to his glorious purpose. That Old Testament reading that I, I had read on Hezekiah, what, what was that about? That was all about somebody that was the king of Israel who'd been given a job to govern God's people. Things had gone pear-shaped. Things had gone wrong. Evil was at the door. They were under siege. A mighty army was sitting outside. Go home and read the rest of that chapter. I wanted to read it all, but it was too long. I wanted to just read some of the verse, and I thought, you've got to back up and get the context. Read that chapter again. Read the whole thing where Hezekiah was like, I'm supposed to be doing your will, God. I'm supposed to be here leading your people. I can't. I'm at the end of my limit. I can't fulfill the purpose you've given for me because of what's outside those walls. But Hezekiah knew one thing. He'd been given a purpose, and that purpose was God's purpose for him to lead the people of God. See, it was God's reputation that was at stake, not Hezekiah. It was God's reputation. So he goes up and he spreads out that letter and reads it before God, the God of the universe, in the temple. He prays and humbles himself and God acts in a miraculous way. Now, how do we respond? I would be very ashamed if a video could be played of my life before Christ rescued me. Very ashamed. It's the last thing I would ever want anybody to see and know. But for the grace of God that he took me out of that mire and put me on a new path. You see, I had to come to a point where I knew that humanity basic. Our config file is corrupted. Our BIOS is corrupted. Our operating system is completely shot. There's nothing good in it. But for the grace of God. And now, through the power of the Holy Spirit... A new operating system is being, being, being installed every day, every moment. If you're honest with yourself when you're driving down there, especially if you've got kids in the back, how many times you're like, oh, please be good today. Stop fighting, stop that. Don't, you know, how many, and how many times when you're driving does, uh, you know, just simple road rage overcome you or just real annoyance for those drivers? If we're truly honest, are we perfect yet? No. But have we been given a high purpose? Yes, we have. Now, at the risk of sounding like a, uh, a cult leader or an absolute nutter, probably the later, I'm going to say, I know what God's will is for you. In, in uh, 1 Thessalonians, it's, this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. Each one of you know how to control his own body and holiness and honour, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. What's God's will for you? To be sanctified. That as you've been called into the family of God, you are the one who's been called to live for this new purpose, the higher purpose, that different purpose. 
It's quite shocking, isn't it, really? Our sanctification. Now, that word, sanctified, means to be holy. It means to be set apart. But it's not like a trophy. Because, look, I may or may not have gotten any trophies at school, but um, often trophies are taken, put in a special case or on a special shelf. You don't give them to kids to play with, do you? They are often set apart to look at. They're special. Forgive me, any grandmas with china cabinets? It's not like the china cabinet where the teacups and plates get put away behind glass and uh, watch grannies if the grandkids run in and run towards that glass and look at the teacups. You'll see flutters of panic. It's not like that. This word holy, to be set apart, was used of the cups in the Old Testament temple. They were holy and set apart for use. That's the word that's described of the saints, the hagios, the set-apart ones of God. So once we become God's children, we're to be taken from our old humanity basic and be given Holy Spirit 3.0. And as it's being, being, being installed, as we live that out, we are to be put to purpose, a new purpose. Words that were spoken a long time ago, but I just read them yesterday. Billy Graham said that, uh, living a life without God is like being an unsharpened pencil. There's no point. I think that's a little extreme because I would say humanists will create a, a point. They create all sorts of purposes in their life, don't they? But once you're adopted into God's family and you become his child, he gives you a different purpose. I remember once I, I did an upgrade on my laptop and I was trying to get it done and I, it was when I was pastoring a little church down the valley and, uh, of course, you're like, oh, I'll do that upgrade and then about half an hour later, walk back in, the blue screen of death is sitting in front of me. You're like, no, 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 no. And guess what? I hadn't printed my sermon yet. It was Saturday sometime and I was like, why did I do this? I'd, I'd run out of ink. I hadn't got the, the printer cartridge and I'm like... Yes, sometimes guys don't think things through very much, do we? I find out my buddy, who's an authorised laptop repairer, says, help, and he said, bring it over. And as it's booting up, he switches off, he watches the screen, he says, okay. I'm like, I, I haven't backed up, and I haven't. He says, stop panicking. He says, stop panicking. <laughs> Two minutes later, a few keystrokes, my computer is back. He removed the offending file. You see, God's like that, isn't he? He knows. Why do we get so impatient? Oh, that sin that we know we shouldn't. Why do we keep going back to it? Why do we keep mucking up the install process of, of living for God and being set on that new purpose? Because it's messy, because it's hard, because we're impatient. It's tough to live the Christian life, isn't it? In the face of everything around us. There's a great quote by a Catholic commentator, P.T. Forsyth, and he says this, The secret of the Lord is with those who have been broken by the cross and healed by the Spirit. I want to re-emphasize that I think this is a little too simplistic. I think it should be those who are being, being, being healed by the Spirit. Because what you will not hear me say is, become a Christian and your life will magically be... You will not hear me say that. What you will hear me say, that is, God's grace will be with you. God's spirit will empower you. 
God will be with you through the tough times, the hard times, the difficult times. There's times you wish you didn't have to struggle so much. See, our purpose in life shouldn't be self-centered, should it? Because Jesus longs to say, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy burdened. Take my yoke upon you and I'll give you rest. Rest for your souls. I think that's important. What would you say to Christians who are sitting in a prison cell because of their faith, who may not see the next week, the next month, the next year, on this physical earth, has God failed them? Or will his grace sustain them? And as he welcomes them into eternity as adopted sons and daughters, where they will know no more suffering, no more pain, that's the merciful God we know. That ought to make our hearts overflow with gratitude and praise, shouldn't it? See, we've been set free to praise. We have been set free to praise. See this, verse 6, it says, To the praise of His glorious grace, with which He has blessed us in the beloved. His praise, not ours. This creator God is the God of all of humanity. He's not the God of one people group. One of my favorite verses is Revelation uh, passages, chapter 7. After this I looked and behold a great multitude... A great multitude. This is the end of humanity being described for us. The end of days when God wraps everything up. I love this picture. From every nation, all tribes, all peoples, all languages, standing before the throne, before the Lamb. What's the motivation to be a missionary? To go and proclaim the gospel to those who don't know how to praise yet. Clothed in white robes with palm branches, crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to our Lamb. Love it. Amen. Blessing, glory, wisdom, thanksgiving, honor and power and might to be our God forever and ever. Amen. Do you know why I love this so much? Who... Who deserves this? Nobody. On who's the basis of whose effort? Not us. It's on the basis of what Christ has done for us. I love that. Don't worry, on more than one occasion I've had people say, wait, God saved you? Yes, God saved me. Should evacuate pride, conceit. He adopts us into the family. He blesses us way beyond what we could ever ask or think. Amen. See, he doesn't just give us mercy because mercy doesn't give us what we do deserve. We deserve judgment and punishment. But then he bestows grace and grace gives us what we could never earn. Adoption into the family. Isn't that cause for praise? Isn't that cause to say, how good is our God? How good is our God? So I'll ask you a question. If you heard a rumor that there was a very wealthy person who'd gone through somewhere in Hobart and was handing out $500 packets, and you heard rumors, and they, they got the news cameras out, and they found people, and they said, did you? Yes, I received it. 
Who else received? Yes, yes, we received it too. Would they be saying, what a mean, nasty person that was? They didn't give that to everybody. No, the people who've received an amazing gift. Let's just not make it $5,000. Let's make it pardon and forgiveness for eternity. Let's make it the empowering Holy Spirit that can fill you. And let's make it that the more you give and pass on, the greater the gift grows. That's what the gospel is. Is that not cause for praise? And yet it seems to be the opposite of what society wants to do for the gospel, isn't it? See, it's not malicious. It's because of the redeeming work of Jesus. When we worked in Bolivia, South America, uh, we used to show the Jesus video and we got a, a version eventually that was in their Quechua language, their Bolivian Quechua language. My heart broke the one time when a little old granny who couldn't read had watched the Jesus video and she said, now I know that God speaks my language. Can you detect the error in her thinking about her standing and her value? before the God who longs for every tongue, nation, tribe to be standing before him and worshipping. But we do that in small ways, don't we? We make less of what God has done for us. We don't really fully appreciate and embody that, do we? See, Tim Keller says this, without the gospel, we hate ourselves instead of our sin. Without the gospel, we're motivated through all sorts of awful fear and pride to change. It doesn't really change our hearts, it just restrains our hearts because we're still fearful. Tim Keller goes on and says this, if you know what he has done at infinite cost to himself, he puts you into a relationship that, you could, that you'll never be rejected by him. Wow. So is God good? He's shown himself to be good. How? By what Christ has done for us. So I ask you, what's stifling your praise? Is it pain? Is it suffering? Is it injustice? Is it fear? What is it? See, God has shown humanity that he is good. But not everybody can see it yet. Yet. See, he's paid the price for us to be pardoned, redeemed, set free. Even when we're cursing him and spitting in the face and go away and leave me alone like I was as an angry 17-year-old. He's a patient father. He's a merciful father. He's a good father. He's a father who's able to look past everything that we throw at him because Christ has taken it and embraced it and nailed it to the cross with himself. So he stands with nail-pierced hands extending, waiting for us to finally listen and return to him as his adopted sons and daughters that we might live for his purpose, that we might be praising him. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning, for your word that is so rich, so deep, so unfathomable. Thank you for the reminder that you are good. Thank you for the reminder that you've drawn us into your 
family. You long for us to live for your purpose. That we might praise you. Lord, reach you in our hearts, our lives, that we might praise you today, this week, this month, and this year. We ask this in Jesus' holy and precious and all-powerful name. Amen.